Good morning, everybody. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors of Redemption here, and I get the incredible privilege of doing what I intended to do last week. Uh, I was feeling under the weather, and so I um, wanted to give an overview of the book of Romans, which we're launching into right now. And I just want to affirm Pastor Nate, um, and I gave him less than 24 hours notice. Like, hey, fill in, please. And uh, the faithful brother that he is um, was able to step in because he's been studying, he's been um, processing, and, and uh, so he gave us a little teaser uh, last week. Um, so that was fantastic. So thanks for doing that, Nate. Appreciate that very much. So, all right, so let's talk about Romans, right? So if you see up on the screen, you'll see that as we talk about this new series we're going into, we're calling it Good News. That's, the word, that's what the word gospel means. And there's a phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. It comes out of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. 16 and 17 is kind of the theme verses. Uh, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it's the power of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So maybe you've got one of these, fantastic. Um, you don't have to have them. We'd love to have you to go through that. We'll be getting into this in just a second. But maybe some of you guys actually carry a hard copy of the Bible to the church, maybe? Okay. If you do, uh, I grabbed one that we use um, and put uh, under the chairs. So maybe you want to grab that one or another one. But Because I want to take just a moment to, to highlight a couple of things. Turn in the table of contents. How about that? Let's take a look at the table of contents of the Bible. Um, you'll see that it's arranged, interestingly, as the Old Testament and the New Testament. So now, if you can imagine that, if there never had been an, a New Testament then we would never have called the Old Testament the Old Testament. It would have been the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, the word testament refers to the idea of a covenant. And so the reality that there was an old covenant, an arrangement um, that was uh, a promise given uh, in an old way, um, that's one of the reasons why we use that, between the people of God and God. Um, it's explicitly stated in what's called the first five books of the Old Testament. If you look there, it says Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That There's five, so Penta is the Pentateuch, also called Torah. That's the Hebrew word for law. That's going to be something that we'll need to remember as we go through the book of Romans. And you'll see that there's 39 books there. And then we have the New Testament the New Testament, um, again, because we're in Romans, I want to tell you where Romans sits. Um, so where does it sit physically in our Bibles? You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are what's called the, the Gospels. You've heard that word now for the second time today. Gospel, good news, the story of Jesus and what he has done for us. Now, the reason we have four of those is because God in his sovereignty realizes there's different audiences that need to hear different aspects of the same story. It's almost like if you were to report some news that took place today from our perspective, but you wanted to share it with the people on the streets in Moscow, in Paris, 
or Rio de Janeiro, you would probably say it a little bit differently because of your audience. You'll notice that Luke, the third author there, um, he also wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts <clears throat> is actually called the Acts of the Apostles. And essentially, what takes place in the Acts of the Apostles is that there were 12 apostles chosen by Jesus. One of those guys named Judas. We know what happened to him. He was replaced. And then, um, essentially, they then uh, did a work of presenting the gospel around the, the known world at that time. And so, <coughs> I'm going to be doing that a couple times uh, throughout today, so be prepared for a little bit of cough here and there, so I apologize that for in advance. But, uh, um, so, uh, we have in the book of Acts this, this sending out in the beginning of the church growing and growing and growing. And then what is really interesting is that we have now, finally, the book of Romans. You see that there? See, now, the book of Romans through, if you look in your table of contents through Philemon, there are 13 books. These are all authored by the Apostle Paul. We call them books, but they're more accurately, they're epistles, they're letters. And this is why they're arranged the way they are. Romans through the end of 2 Thessalonians are letters written to churches. 1 Timothy through Philemon are letters written to individuals. And then when in the context of both of those churches and individuals, they're written uh, or they're in order of their size. So that means Romans is like the largest letter that Paul wrote. Now that gives you a little bit of an idea about where it sits in our Bibles physically. But I also want to talk a little bit about where Romans sits in its significance in the church, in the revelation of God, because there is some significance to the book of Romans that has some uniqueness to it. Now, we get dangerously close, okay? I don't want to uh, get, no, I don't want to say, uh, well, let me say it this way. I want to affirm this is true that we are to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Every book in the Bible is important. Paul himself will tell us in 1 uh, uh, Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for correcting, rebuking, sorry, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's all important. But I also want to affirm this, that in the book of Romans, we have something that um, uniquely gives us the opportunity that careful attention and study can make a huge impact on our lives. And as a matter of fact, has made a huge impact on the church. For in the book of Romans, and uniquely the way it's written and addresses certain issues in the church of Rome, we would have what I would say is the closest thing, closest any book we'd have to a systematic theology on particular key doctrinal issues. Like, for instance, when it comes to salvation, we have 
We have election. We have predestination. We have foreknowledge. We have justification. We have regeneration. We have sanctification. We have glorification. All of those heavy topics, but are also presented in a way that have very practical implications. We also have some of the issues like, what is the role of the law? If you remember, I mentioned the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. What is the relationship with the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, with New Testament, New Covenant believers? What's our future look like? All these are laid out and uh, are explained and argued by Paul to take us from one point to bring us to another point. Secondly, in the book of Romans, we have, well, I would say the closest book we have to uh, a biblical theology. Now, biblical theology and systematic theology is a little bit different in that um, biblical theology will trace an idea or a concept from the beginning to the end of Revelation. When I mean revelation, I mean the scriptural revelation. And so what takes place is that specifically in the book of Romans, we have laid out what is involved in salvation and how someone is saved. Case in point, I mentioned one of our theme uh, verses is going to be uh, 117. For in it, referring to the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That verse was studied by this guy named Martin Luther in the 16th century. For years and years and years, what he wrestled with was because he was so influenced by Catholic theology, he had come to believe that righteousness came two ways. We would be declared righteous when we partnered with God to attain and maintain our own righteousness so that then Christ's righteousness would be impugned to us. Which, now, if you're tracking with me, which means this, is that we have to maintain it, working at it, day by day by day by day. And if you're honest with yourself, you recognize we sin constantly, which sent Martin Luther to the confessional booth over and over and over and over and over again until he read that passage and God's spirit illumined on his life a recognition that the righteousness of God comes to us by faith. Nothing that we can do on our own. That's the amazing message that we will see unfolding as we study this book of Romans. And so for me, one of my goals today is to convince all of you, all of us, this is a book we need to study. We need to digest. There are pieces of this we need to memorize. 
there are parts of this book that maybe we've avoided in the past because this is difficult teaching. This is hard, difficult, hard teaching. I don't want to think about this, but it's going to challenge us. It's going to encourage us. It's going to empower us to live the life that God has called us to live. So I, are you with me? I'm excited about this. So, um, you know, those, uh, Pastor Nate mentioned the inductive Bible study sheets. I encourage you to grab one. And this week, maybe what you do is you just start reading through Romans and just read through it a couple times. And then come back and begin to use this as a guide for how you study sections after section after section. And uh, what's great is that uh, this is being done in many of our regroups and many of our D groups. So if you uh, would want to be a part of a group that's doing that and you're not, um, come grab me after the service and I can figure out uh, how to help you get connected with some people who want to do this as well. All right, number two, let's talk about the Church of Rome. Okay? The, the, the New Testament doesn't give us a lot of details about the Church of Rome. When we look at the book of Acts, we see over and over again about how Paul oftentimes travels and starts churches. So we learn about their origin. We have an educated guess when it comes to the, to the church of Rome. It really comes out of Acts chapter 2 because Acts chapter 2 is the story of, what's, of, of the event of what's called Pentecost. Okay, Pentecost is 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, there was a, a festival that the Jewish people would come from all, all, all around the world, to all nations, to come to Jerusalem to celebrate together. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we have a description of people from various places that are identified geographically who obviously would have different languages that they would naturally speak in the marketplace. But that's the day in which God's Spirit was poured out upon his apostles. They proclaimed the message of the gospel, and 3,000 people were saved that day. But what it tells us that prior to the message, before Peter gets up and presents the gospel, it says people heard the apostles speaking in their own tongue, lingua. That was the speaking in tongues. They were speaking in these languages. So they were people from Egypt. So they were people listening to this message of the gospel in Egyptianese, okay? And there were people from Crete, so they were listening to it in Christian or Christianese. And people from Rome, right? So they were listening to it in Latin. Thank you. I, first service people went, like, Roman was easy. Okay. So Latin, most likely, right? So, but we don't know for sure... But it's all, it's, it's, it's most likely that the people who heard it in their own language heard this gospel and went, returned to Rome as brand new believers. Okay, now let's go to Acts chapter 18. Advance that really quickly because this is what's going to happen. Is that for the first time we see that there's evidence of something that has taken place in the church of Rome. Paul's on a missionary journey. He has spent some time in Athens and then he goes west to the city called Corinth. And at Corinth, he meets up with this couple, this Jewish couple, 
they're identified as Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla at different times, same person. This couple, they're Jewish. And Acts chapter 2, I'm sorry, 18 tells us that they have been expelled from Rome along with many other Jewish people. So why did they get expelled? Acts 18 doesn't tell us, but I just realized something. I need to apologize. How far along am I? Would you guess? 16 minutes? All right, so I've got this overview thing, and it's like two hours long. Just kidding, not quite two hours long. But I said, I'm going to preach for 32 minutes, and we'll post this. And this will be part A. And then I will, the next 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever, do part B and post that as well. So I was supposed to start my 32-minute countdown. So let me just change that. And how much time do I have left? Okay, I'll do 15. All right, there we go. All right. Where was I? Acts chapter 18? Priscilla and Aquila? All right. You guys are paying attention. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so, so Prisca and Aquila, see, they're tent makers. So Paul finds them and says, hey, let's join up forces, right, and work together. And Paul stays with them. All right, now, if they are Jews who have left Rome, now, extra-biblical accounts tells us the reason why Emperor Claudius kicked people out of Rome at that time, the Jews, because, and this is according to a Latin um, Roman historian, he will say because of a controversy around this guy, and he does, this historian does his best version of what people and scholars recognize, it's Christ, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because everywhere Paul went in Asia, when he would go into the synagogues, some Jews would believe and many would not, and the crowds got stirred up. So over and over again, there would be these controversies, these difficulties. So you can imagine that also took place in Rome. So if Paul goes to live and stay Prisca and Aquila, which side of the gospel do you think they are on? They're on the right side. They hang out together. Year and a half later, they go to Ephesus. Paul leaves for a while, leaves them there. They listen to this guy named Apollos. Apollos is a young man, eloquent, gifted speaker. People go, yeah, I like, I like his YouTube channel. I mean, they were really into him. When he gets done speaking, Prisca and Aquila go, hey, you're pretty good at this. But they explain to him more accurately the word of the truth of God, its gospel, which tells us that there is a maturity within the church in Rome and a maturity within Prisca and Aquila. So now let's go to let's go to chapter sixteen, because five years later, what takes place is this. Oh, so so they were kicked out in forty seven, I think it was, or forty nine. I can't remember right now. And then five years later, they're allowed to come back, and so they so. Prisca and Aquila do go back to Rome. And we see in verse 3, it says this. It says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their neck for my life. 
to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So what's taking place? Think about this for a moment. The church of Rome, started by Jewish believers, believing their, their Messiah from the Old Testament, and then they leave, but there's probably a Gentile remnant of believers that now no longer has that influence. Now all these Jewish believers comes back in, and of course, everybody gets along in the church really well. There's all kinds of controversies. And we'll see throughout Rome, the book of Romans, that Paul begins to address many of these issues that they're wrestling through and explains how they can work together and to understand and comprehend what God's up to. All right, that's the Church of Rome. Let's talk about the Apostle Paul. I'm just going to go real brief because, you know, Pastor Nate will probably get into Paul uh, quite a bit when we go through chapter 1, 1 through 7. Uh, quite uh, simply, let me just say this. The Apostle Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But you see, he's got a very unique background. We're told that he was educated as a Pharisee under this guy named Gamaliel. Okay, and I know Gamaliel sounds like one of the characters from Lord of the Rings. It's not, okay? He's actually one of the leading um, teachers of the Mosaic Law in the first century in Jerusalem. So Paul is very, very well-grounded and taught in the law of Moses. But he's called to be a gen uh, an apostle to the Gentile, which gives him a very unique ability to navigate the issues that the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers would have as they discern uh, what is salvation all about? Okay. Next, let's talk a little bit about purpose. Why Paul writes his, this letter to the book, or to the church at Rome. And this is where we're going to get into a bunch of scriptures. So if you want to turn to 1.10. And uh, let me just say this, that up on the screen you'll see throughout this series when we look at 1.10, or we look at um, uh, the scriptures on the screen, um, you'll see on the very top there's some numbering. Uh, that says 20, whatever it says, 28A? What does it say? 26A? Okay, that's the page number here on, in the journal. If it says B, it's at the bottom of the page. If it says A, it's on the top of the page. That's the way you can kind of keep track um, as we kind of move through the scriptures. The the, the formatting was a little bit too difficult to make it match exactly, but you'll, if it's A, it's on the top half. it's B, it's the second half. Okay, now, why? Why is Paul writing? He says this in verse 10. He's speaking about how he prays, and he says, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You see, he's describing the fact that he just, he wants to be, uh, wants to encourage them, wants to build them up, and he knows that they will, they will both be encouraged by their faith and his faith. But then he goes into more detail. Let's go to um, uh, chapter 15, look at verse 14. And this will be on page 15, 14, page 106 at the very top. 
He says in the latter half of that verse that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct another. Listen to this, verse 15. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. That's a nice way of saying, I had to be tough with you. I had to be direct at times. And in fact, he does, because as I mentioned, there is this this ongoing dispute, differences of opinion, um, discussion about Jewish traditions and the Gentiles and how they're going to get along and how they function and how they work together. Uh, Later on in in Romans, we'll see that he describes the weak Christian and the who is judgmental and the the other one who doesn't really kind of care about the weak and just does things which is insensitive to the weak Christian. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work. You'll see sprinkled out through the book of Romans where he's He's making a defense of who he is and his teaching because he knows that he's been misrepresented in the past. And then we go on to verse 19, the second half of that. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyric, 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 yeah, okay, <clears throat> that place, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel now where Christ has already been named build on someone else's foundation. And so he goes, I don't, I'm not going to come just to plant more churches, but I want to encourage you. And then we get a broader picture of this in verse 22 on page 108, that he desires to elicit support because this is his ultimate goal. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, these other places, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. See, not only is it pastoral in his desire, but also it's, mich- it's missional. It's he wants to have a new base of support for where he can launch some new missions work. All right, let's talk now about some of the key uh, literary devices that he uses. And I'm going to walk through three of them, and, that's, and this is the last thing that we'll do um, uh, for this kind of part A of the overview, because I want to share three things. Because what happens in the, in the book of Romans is that it's clear that... Um, as Paul argues and makes his points, he wants to bring the, the reader along on a story and a progression of thought and understanding. And so along the way, he will anticipate questions and things that we might be thinking about. And so there's almost like this hypothetical conversation that will take place. Turn to chapter 2, verse 1. This is one of those. You'll find it on 32A. He says, uh, he's coming out of a, a discussion that he has where he's basically talking about um, Gentiles and pagans and how bad they are. And you can almost imagine 
that as he's picturing this being read to these house churches in Rome, that there's probably a group of the Jewish believers that are looking out their windows at those pagans and those people and picturing their neighbors and going, yeah, those nasty, evil people, those wicked, deplorable people. And then he says this, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. And this oftentimes is a vernacular for one Jew to speak to another. He says, every one of you who judges, you have no excuse for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. That phrase, he's actually used in 132, practice such things. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourselves? He could almost picture to somebody who's pointing their finger and going, look how bad and evil those people are. He says, you're judging people, but do you turn and look at it yourself or not? So he anticipates this, con this conversation that's taking place. Let me share with you two more way literary devices he uses. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about them being uh, rhetorical questions. And the one is in, I would say, is in a positive and one is in a negative. The positive is an example that would be found in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. So you would turn to Romans 8, 31. I love this. He comes to talking about um, this hope that we have found in Christ, this unbreakable chain. And then he gets to verse 31, and he's saying, okay, now, I want you to think about this. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Of course, it's rhetorical because there's no answer to that. It is absolutely, yes. And then he, but then he reinforces that by describing why we can know this to be true. He almost repeats almost the same thing in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He wants us to know that there's nothing can separate us. Not only a who, but then he talks about it in terms of a what. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he anticipates these, these questions we might have, and he, he places these thoughts in our minds to prompt us to understand the depth of God's love for us, for instance, in here. Let's talk about one more. I'm going to talk about um, what I would call the, the ten irrational rhetorical questions found in the book of Romans. Ten times, and I think you know, Pastor Nate mentioned this one time last last week. They're identified by he asks this question, and then he says the ESV version of it is by no means. It is literally may it never be. It is an emphatic rejection of this thought, and the reason I say it is irrational is because 
What Paul is saying is if you were in your right mind, you would never even consider this. Now, are there times where we're not in our right minds? Quite often. And so he doesn't say, I'm just, just don't even think about that. But he, he does address it. He says, let me tell you why. It's not true that we can't think that way. If you would, turn to um, Romans 6. Let me tell you why this one particularly stands out to me. There are 10 of these, but Romans 6 stands out to me because um, I watched it unfold in a very a significant way one time in my life. Um, I, this is when we were living out, out of uh, Colorado, and, and I'd flown into Denver, and um, I was participating in a conference that was going to take place, I think, down in the tech center. So I knew that I had quite a bit of a, a drive ahead, but I didn't need a car because that hotel we were staying at um, had a shuttle service. So I grab my bag, and I go to the shuttle drop-off pickup place, and I realize um, from the driver that I'm the only one they're picking up which means I've just, it's just me and him in a 12-passenger van. And I look at the guy, and I go, he's probably Muslim. We might have a fun conversation here. This would be great. So I hop up into the passenger seat, and I look over in the center council. There is a, is a book, and it's got some Arabic on it. You know, being an astute person, I go, that's probably the Quran, Okay. We're going to have some fun conversations here. And so I, I figured he was probably open to the a conversation, so we'd launch right in. It was great. And we talked about the nature of God, the nature of salvation, things like that. And it wasn't surprising that he got to this point, and he said almost verbatim, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He said, this is the problem with your God and your message. You Christians... You believe because God will forgive everything. You can do anything you want. You can just continue in sin, and it doesn't matter because you can just, I'll sin, 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 and then ask for forgiveness. I said, actually, that's a great question. And we have a prophet too. His name, the Apostle Paul, and he says, he addresses that same question. 6-1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And you see, when we go through this book of Romans, we will come to questions like this over and over and over and over again, things that we might be willing to mention to other people, but maybe some things we've got that haunt us, that cause us to think, that we really question. This book will equip us in remarkable ways as we live our lives before God recognizing who we are in Christ, what he's done for us, that security that we can have in him, how to deal with sin, the very real struggles we have in our lives. And what things should be important and not so important in the body of Christ. 
Let's get after this. All right, I told you. Okay, up on the screen. To prepare for our time of communion, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray Romans 12, 1 and 2 over us. And when I'm done, we're going to then put up um, a passage from Romans chapter 6. Um, when that one comes up, so yeah, so pray with your eyes open as you look at the screen. When you see Romans 6, I'm just going to be silent for a while. What I'd love for you to do is to kind of pray, read through and pray through that passage. Because it'll be a great reminder of why we celebrate communion. That what has taken place for us in Christ. The reality is that everyone who place, has placed their faith in Christ today, you've died to the old self and you're new in Christ. You have been united with him in his death. And there's a promise of being united with him in his life. So, let's pray. Gracious Father, we're so thankful for uh, that you have revealed your word to us and you've given your servants to present your word. And today, God, I speak on behalf and I pray on behalf of Redemption Church that, God, that we would be a people presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. Knowing, the God, that by your mercy, by your grace, by your free gift, that we can come before you, wholly acceptable to you, and we long, God, to worship you in spirit and truth. And so we come to you in that way, Father. And Father, we recognize that there are areas of our lives that we, and honestly, have been conformed to this world sins of the flesh and pride and issues that we, and temptations we wrestle with, Father. I'm grateful that there's a promise that you will conform us to the image of your Son, but God, in the middle of all this, sometimes we struggle to wrestle. God, help us to be aware that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Help us to be people who walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And God, we long to be people to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, God, I ask that you'd help us to be a people that would abide in you through your word and prayer, that we would be digging into your word daily, Father, that we, we would see what your word has to say, that, God, we would submit to your word, we would trust in your word as it reveals, God, who you are, what you've done, your calling our lives, how you call us to live such that, Father, in our daily lives, we would discern what is your will, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. I invite you to pray through this, read through this, and pray through this passage.
Father, as we prepare for communion, grateful for the reminder, God, that this, um, this act of worship reminds us of a body, Christ's perfect life. Father, in the incarnation, God, uh, the Son became flesh and dwelt among us and lived a purpose, a, um, a sinless life and gave his life on a cross and died a physical death. And then also God represented by the cup, God reminded that his blood was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. So Father, help us to be people who recognize that we have died with Christ and that because of that, God, we know we live with Christ. Help us to live that kind of life today and commit ourselves to that. Help us to worship you, honor you, give you thanks and praise today for what you've done through us, for us, in your son Jesus. Amen. When you've had a chance to pray and process and are ready to take the elements, I invite you to come forward and take those. And then maybe return to your seat and um, maybe stand and, and sing with the band.